fall of 2017, two employees of a small adult learning center in East Central Alberta were scheming away. They'd recently started a project highlighting the farm solutions that are also climate solutions, and they wanted that message to reach Alberta's agriculture producers no matter where they lived. And they wanted that message to be accompanied by info that you didn't have to leave the farm to access, something you could take in while seeding or weeding or baling. And if it came with an inspiring story or two, all the better. I'm Derek Leahy, and this is a very special episode 50 of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. We're celebrating a pretty cool milestone for our podcast in this episode. I don't know what the average lifespan is of a podcast, but thinking up, recording, and producing 50 episodes feels like a pretty big deal to us. Actually, technically, as of today, so September 22nd of 2022, we'll have recorded 50 episodes and seven bonus episodes. So you could argue we hit our 50th episode earlier in the year. As I said in the intro, we wanted to do something special for our 50th episode to mark the occasion. So myself and the Rural Roots team put our heads together, and what we came up with in the end was we thought it'd be fun if we talked about what our next 50 episodes might be about. And, you know, while we're doing that, we could take a crack at guessing where agriculture in Alberta and the general agriculture movement to leave the land better off than when we found it, where those things would be in about five years. Now, why five years? It took us about five years to produce 50 episodes and seven bonus episodes. So how exactly we're going to go about doing this? I myself, I am definitely not a fortune teller. So I went out and I enlisted the help of some fortune tellers. Okay, they're not real fortune tellers. So basically what I did, I asked my coworkers, so the rest of the Rural Roots team, which would be Marie Galanka, Kristen Mountain, and Cheyenne Younger, as well as Kelly Sidoric, which is a name probably a lot of you recognize, especially if you've taken the holistic management course. I asked them where they thought Rural Roots would be in five years, where the egg community and sector would be in five years. We also asked you, our listeners, what you thought we should cover in the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast in the future. So I'd like to take this opportunity to thank Jay, Jackie, Rob, Susanna, Dave, Mildred, Richard, and Roland for sharing your ideas. These are some of the ideas they shared with us. So in the next 50 episodes, we could share more success stories. Talk about that tricky balancing act between the need for more renewable energy and appropriate land use. We could talk about autonomous farm vehicles or aerobic digesters. We could also talk more about growing fast-growing willow plantations, shelter belts, eco-buffers, silvopasture, and alley cropping. We could also take a look at the controversial plan in the Netherlands that's out there right now to reduce livestock numbers in an attempt to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And we could even discuss shifting annual targets from maximum yields per acre to annual improvements of soil health. Once again, big thank you to all those folks for providing those ideas. Now, it does come up on the podcast from time to time that my academic background is actually in history, not agriculture. I graduated from Wilfrid Laurier University in Waterloo, Ontario with an undergrad in history. Then I'd spend the next seven years of my life, so pretty much all my 20s, working as a tour guide in Germany, mainly in Berlin, talking about the history that so fascinated me at the time and, you know, still kind of fascinates me to this day. Agriculture didn't really enter my life until I left Europe 
Found myself in Franklin, Tasmania, making veggie beds on a small mixed farm overlooking the beautiful Huon River. But that's a story for another time. Now, as a student of history, I know it's good to know where you've come from in order to get a better idea of where you're going. Plus, there's really no harm in looking back to see what you've achieved and recognize the mistakes you probably don't want to make again. So if you'll indulge me a bit here, I'm going to clean off the dust from my tour guide hat and take you on a bit of a tour to podcast of our last 50 episodes so we can understand where rural roots and by extension, Agricultural Climate Solutions Alberta have been. The the biggest thing that we're proud of is that we're open-minded. That we want to interact with the ecology. That uh, Chinese-style passive solar greenhouse is pretty cost-effective. I I think a lot comes down to really to the land. Being an early adopter is a stressful uh, position. Uh, You can read and you can do all of the studying, but until you actually put into practice what you're learning, But regenerative ag, it's not an orthodoxy or a dogma. You know, we're often having to, like, uh, make the decision between making money or supporting the ecology. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. That was like the 30-second version of our tour of the Rural Roots of Climate Solutions podcast. We will be doing the longer and proper version of the tour in this episode. But if that 30 seconds gave you goosebumps, just wait until you get to the full highlights reel at the very end of this episode. Comes up right after the credits. So just before we take a look at those 50 episodes, I want us to listen to the interview that I did with Kelly Sidoric, who's a holistic management educator. The interview I did with her in August of 2022. Now, the reason why I think this is important is because Rural Rooster Climate Solutions and a lot of other egg extension groups who do similar work in Alberta, I would argue we all really benefited from the work that holistic management did before, for example, Rural Roots was created. They really laid the groundwork for things like sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, climate-friendly agriculture, and really building a community around these practices. So I took the opportunity when I finally got a chance to interview Kelly, and we've been dying to get Kelly on the podcast for a very long time. So I took the opportunity to ask her about that particular origin story. How did she get involved in holistic management? How did holistic management wind up in Alberta? And also asked her a couple questions of where she thinks the egg sector is going. So we'll listen to that interview first, then we'll take a look at those 50 episodes. My name is Kelly Sidoric, and our family lives just west of Lloydminster near a small town called Blackfoot, Alberta. Uh, we're almost on the Alberta-Saskatchewan border. So I'm part of a family ranching operation. We have a location here in Alberta, and then we have another operation further east in Saskatchewan. So it uh, has transitioned through my family. Now our kids are getting involved in it. So we basically are a grazing operation running different classes of livestock. We have our own cow-calf our own yearlings or stalkers, as well as custom of both those classes. And then in addition to that, I have been so fortunate to be able to have in a real broad term, a consulting enterprise where I've got to work with a lot of amazing people over the last 30 years. It started out to be in the arena of holistic management and has expanded. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in our conversations, Derek. But the focus 
a lot these days is on the succession transition planning, whichever you would term you would like to use piece. Uh, it's very, it's an important topic because really just with demographics of the age of our farmers and ranchers, I was going to say in Western Canada, but I'm going to say North America, probably global too. It's time to start figuring out those pieces, which can certainly be challenging. So yeah, that kind of takes care of some of the baseline work that we do. When did you first hear about holistic management? I first heard about holistic management. And at that time, it was known as holistic resource management in the mid 1980s. So at that time, uh, my family had a feedlot operation here. And I worked in Calgary for a livestock publication. My dad was active on the Alberta cattle feeders with Blake Holtman from Southern Alberta. They were they both sat on the Alberta Cattle Feeders board at the same time. Blake had first been introduced to Alan Savory and holistic resource management. And dad was very, very interested. And they both ended up, I think, at the same time. There used to be a school in a short course in the States, often in Texas, that was uh, organized and led by Dr. Ensminger, the Ensminger short course. It was quite popular at the time and really had a wide, wide array of topics on different, um, I think it was mostly livestock, but other ag applications. Anyway, so many people came together for three days. They had a lot of speakers. And at one of those Ensminger short courses, both dad and Blake Holtman heard Alan Savory speak as well. I think Kirk Gadsia, who is a, you know, a long time holistic management educator, I think he was also speaking at that same conference. So that was the very beginning of it. And so here I am back on the uh, magazine in Calgary. And I think I probably pitched it to the editor. Hey, these Holtmans are doing an interesting thing. I'd like to go and write a story on them. And so I did and learned even more. And also uh, there was the way the education training program was set up with holistic resource management was they had two what they called core courses. And I think one was called Introduction to Holistic resource management. And the other one was called building the effective organization. So those were what they called the two core courses, and they were five days long. And then from there, they had short courses, you would call it. So for example, in the overview, holistic management, financial planning was a sub course, grazing was another one. And then on the other side, building the effective organization, Leadership was a subcourse, team building, I think a family's in business, and uh, strategic long-range planning as well. So anyway, my dad and some of his colleagues had been to the finances and cows and grass one and came back very excited and said, you know, some more of our team really needs to go. There's another one coming up, the Building Effective Organization was happening in Entheos, or no, it was at Waterton. Waterton, that's where that one was. So dad came home and said, well, you girls should go to it. So uh, my mom and myself and one of our key owner managers in our feedlot operation, her and her husband, 
went with us as well. So we went and attended that five-day course all about the people side of things. And that's where I first met David Irvine. He was a participant in that class as well. I treasure the fact that, you know, we've had a long relationship and I consider him to be such a wise mentor and friend of mine as well. So anyway, that's how it was set up back then. And that uh, was an aha moment for me because I'd been, because I worked for Livestock Magazine, I went to a lot of producer meetings and um, I heard them talk a lot about cows and grass and feeding and the land a little bit, but I never heard them talk about people. And I was interested in leadership. I was interested in personal development. And I found myself pursuing those kind of courses in my off work hours. So for then to discover an ag approach, for lack of a better term, framework, management process that included the people side of it, that was just, I was all in with both feet. So my parents thought that their exit strategy would be an employee takeover of that operation, which didn't quite happen that way. And then I went home and then a few years later, my brother did as well. And we basically took that operation and transitioned it to not what it is today, but made a lot of the big steps to make it a forage livestock based entity. So those were some of the pieces. Then at the same time, Holistic Resource Management, the center it was called, was in Albuquerque, had a certified educator program that was a non-traditional degree. It was a self-directed program. And so I signed up for that for two, three years, did a lot of training and courses to become a certified educator. So then that was how I got my um, foot in the door that way. And of course, my focus on that time had been families and business, which you know, as I had mentioned before, it continues. So fortunate because so much, we were making a lot of change in our operation and my parents were quite open to being flexible. So I could still be doing some consulting and facilitating as well as working in the home operation. And then I often tell people we went through, well, took quite a few years to do our succession plan where it transitioned to my generation and then it felt like a blink of an eye and now my children, our children are young adults sitting across the table uh, and we're trying to do it again. Then you just sort of like, you know, you're doing journalism for this cattle publication and but there's that people component. And then it sounds like you decided to almost go all in on this holistic management thing, which I'm assuming was fairly fringe at the time. So, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Wondering why you took the deep dive. I really liked the livestock. The cattle were high up on my list, too. And I, I was intrigued by the finances. I and I felt strongly, you know, just kind of starting to really understand holism, which I think I'm still trying to understand that if you want to know the truth. But, you know, realizing that there are these interconnected pieces and that we can have the greatest landscape, but if our finances are in disarray or our people, or we have to try to do the best we can to balance it. And I feel like that's a bit of a moving target too. I don't think that's a set um, I'm not envisioning that as a set pie divided into three. And so it made sense that we needed to look at all those three areas. I, you know, at the beginning, I mean, there's still so much more that has happened with that. Certainly back then, 
holistic resource management was really considered a grazing strategy. You know, Alan Savory had come from South Africa with his partner at the time, Stan Parsons, and, you know, had really recognized from what he had learned there as a wildlife biologist that the problem with desertification and especially on arid landscapes. So, you know, some of his strategies were really focused on that type of management to try to minimize desertification. And as as he expanded, and then, of course, Stan Parsons split off and started the Ranching for Profit School, and Alan Savory was still working with holistic resource management. And then as years went on, it just got dropped to holistic management. But, you know, as it was evolving, there was still a lot of learning going on and trying to look at the financial side of things as well as the people side and the importance of that. And I'm appreciative of the fact that I think producers and agriculture is really becoming more aware about that, of the uh, importance of the human component on a bunch of different levels, actually. Can you remember the very first holistic resource management event you were involved in either in Alberta or Saskatchewan. I know you mentioned you went to that one in Waterton, but I'm kind of curious, like maybe one of your first ones as an organizer. Like I say, that was five days. And back then they did them in retreat-like settings. And both of them, like the more production finance focused one was like that too. So groups of people came from all over the place and we stayed at our learning center. There was a group of fellows at that Waterton course, in addition to David Irvine from Spain that we got to learn with. That was really interesting. And then right at that time, because the center was in Albuquerque, they had annual gatherings there. So it would be like a conference, you know, two to three day conference, but they also put short courses on, usually ahead of or after And so our family would annually for a number of years, we went to Albuquerque and, you know, took some courses, did some more training, and then got to meet some of the coolest people ever, you know, that were gathered for the conference. One of the stories I tell, oh gosh, and this is really, I think there was a movement. I think it was Grazing Free by 93. So that's how long ago that was in the States where they were trying to get livestock off of the BLM Bureau for Land Management lands. And there was a big, a lot of talk about trying to to do that. And anyway, they had a session that was talking about the concept of wolves and reintroducing or eliminating or whatever. And the ranch, some ranchers were having a lot of challenges with the predation of the wolves. And they had a panel where there was some ranchers on there. There was probably some BLM uh, representatives. And there was also an environmentalist. And that was the first time in my career that I'd gone to a conference where they actually invited people of the opposite opinion to come and share their ideas. And I was surprised at that. And and I feel like that's a really good model that still applies today. We should be doing more of that where we're trying to learn from each other and understand the other person's viewpoint without going down a current rabbit hole instead of being divisive. I talk about only 2% of us are in ag uh, 
production. That's pretty small. We need to be joining forces more. And then I read the other day, I thought that 2%, that's an old figure. And it's the most recent one I read was one and a half percent. You go to these conferences in Albuquerque, like you're there with your people and everything's great. But eventually you got to go back to Alberta and like do the hard work in a way. I don't know, was it ever scary doing that part? Well, I think that, you know, because my parents were strongly interested and supporters of it. And my dad, he had a lot of connections and he could influence people. And so it was easy for him to say, ah, come on, get on this bus with us. So we did, you know, people got on the bus with us and certainly not everybody did. And, and people wondered, you know, like, wow, we talk about one of the first things in a current holistic management course is talking about our paradigms and really recognizing what thoughts and beliefs and values we're operating under and not to pass judgment on them, but just trying to figure out what serves you and what doesn't. And, you know, the idea of learning and trying different things, I think was really interesting, but there's no doubt that a lot of people think at that time, particularly sometimes got into the areas of, you know, the softer side of things. And traditionally, farmers and ranchers aren't so keen to do that type of work, you know, so that was another thing that uh, set it apart a little bit, too. I remember seeing a graph or hearing about a graph, and it's probably Alan Savory himself that talked about it. And it it's the change adoption curve. And I've come across it more recently with Simon Sinek's work, the marketing leadership fellow who, I don't know if he's connected in ag at all, but he's the one that talks about the golden circle and the art of why. But he talks about the bell curve and the first 2.5%. Interesting that it's close to how many are in agriculture. The innovators is 2.5%. Then the next group are the early adopters, and they're 13.5%. Then we get to the early majority, which goes up to the top of the bell curve, 34%. Now late majority, 34%, and the final 16% of laggards. So I was thinking about that when I came across it. And I don't know if we would have considered ourselves innovators, but certainly we were early adopters. And, you know, sometimes like it's kind of goes like this before the curve starts going up like that. So there was a long time where there didn't seem to be too many newcomers coming to the uh, to the gathering, so to speak. But then certainly in the last 15 years, 20, probably, I think that I feel like we're probably up to the top of the early majority and perhaps into the late majority. One indicator that we've talked about within some of the people that have been involved a long time in holistic management is, you know, in some of the ag publications. And 20 years ago, 30 years ago, it was very rare that you would see an article in one of those publications about what anybody that was considered to be a HM practitioner was doing. And now it's commonplace. The majority of them will have some kind of reference. And even if they're not necessarily trained in holistic management, it's just that they're like-minded and thinking of some of those different things, whether it be from a holistic approach, a systems approach, whichever terminology, you know, that people are starting to pay more attention to those things. Of course, early on too, it was really, like I said, deemed more like a cattle grazing. So it attracted ranchers 
more so than cropping or farmers. And I think as time's gone on, and we've learned more about applying the principles better in those arenas as well. Again, I've only been in working in this space for about five years, and I'm not even originally from Alberta. But in my very humble opinion, that a lot of the work that Rural Roots has been able to do, or uh, Young Agrarians, maybe even some of the other egg extension organizations, like I feel like we can do it because holistic management blazed that trail for us. And maybe somebody blazed a trail for holistic management before that too. So mm-hmm. like the, the impact and the reach, and like you, you said earlier that like you guys are starting to uh, engage some of those bigger percentages on that bell curve too. The, the reach and impact that HMs had is definitely something that I know rural roots would love to emulate. And I know other groups that would probably like to emulate. And it is a very broad question. Uh, so how do you do it? When I was going back to talk about some of our initial learnings and exposure to holistic management, that was all happening in Alberta. And we seem to be having different learning events. That was one of the strategies that, you know, somebody would organize a conference, get some speakers. One of the other things that I hadn't mentioned is that from the core learning, and whether that was a five-day course or six or three or whatever, Often we would form what we called management groups. And so that as people had gone through this intense learning together, have a group that they could then move forward and help that support them with change and learning. And some of those were highly successful and some not so much. But the, the ones that were more successful and more active often added an element such as organizing some more training or learning for themselves and then they'd throw it wide open uh the devon group was a really strong group my parents were in that one they called it the devon group because their first training was at devon alberta they still meet not quite as often but honestly for 25 years they met almost monthly really supported people through a lot of change and learning and so when they would decide as a group, you know, we need to have a learning event. This is one I distinctly remember. One of the facilitators they had in was Joyce Irvine, David's mother. They often had David as well. And she was so good in the whole people arena, so to speak. And so they thought, well, you know, we want to learn this, but let's open it up. Let's invite our friends and neighbors. And certainly, you know, that was a way that a lot of change happened with that. And then it would go to a conference. We often debated and discussed this. And I've had many conversations with Don Campbell, another very well-known and respected holistic management practitioner and educator, as far as how organized do we need to get, how structured. And we honestly were mostly grassroots. David Irvine used to refer to it more as a movement. You know, and so when there was a nucleus of people that were interested in doing something, you just kind of supported and went with that. Any other like thoughts which were kind of some of the keys to HM success? Well, you know, again, you've heard me say it a few times, probably say it a few more, but that inclusion of the people side of things always very inclusive of families. For a basic course, even we encourage at least couples to attend and 
all the gatherings always included families. So there's, you know, they have a children's program. There's little kids. Uh, I remember one event, I think it was at Rocky Mountain House. I'm not sure. I think Alan Nation, who you, the former editor of the Stockman Grass Farmer was coming up to speak. That was a management club over there that had organized that one. And they had a some of the teenage kids were going to do a children's program. And it ended up that so many people came, so many uh, kids ended up in the program. These young teenage gals were just overwhelmed. And in fact, at that particular one, our kids, our oldest two girls were uh, probably maybe two and four. And there was so many kids there. I just went and hung out at the with them at the children's program because it was kind of overwhelming for those girls. But it's very typical that that would be the case families were always, always included. I'm curious if, it, if there's change in the air for the sector right now. Like it, it seems like the last two years have been just up and down and a lot of interesting things have happened. A lot of horrible things have happened. Is that just the sector? Is there always change in the air? Or is there something unique about the moment? You know, I think I'd have to say I would lean towards there's always change in the air. If we went back to, I remember the slides that we used to show in the intro to HRM courses, we'd talk about the challenges that we're facing in Alberta agriculture or Western Canadian agriculture. And, you know, interestingly enough, high inputs, low commodity prices, variable weather. Now that's probably more variable now, but, you know, the idea, I I think there's always been this set of challenges and probably in part due to the number of variables that we have and what is and what is not in our control. So that they would take those types of challenges and then say presented from another uh, point of view, maybe it would have been an African example where, I mean, their challenges at that time and still probably are, you know, were made ours look quite minor. And not that not to minimize because there are a lot of challenges, but I don't know, is that on a exponential growth? I don't know, but it does seem in the past there was always the markets and those type of things that we were having to work under. And and even yet back then, you know, what we considered high input prices was nothing compared to what we're having to deal with now. So I think the challenges are always there. Just for context, uh, so the, the whole point of this episode, it's the 50th episode, and we're mm-hmm. sort of wondering what the next 50 episodes are going to be like. And it took us about four or five years to do 50 episodes. So that's why I'm asking you, where do you think agriculture in Alberta or the prairies is going to be in five years and you give me the good the bad and the ugly if you'd like yeah well again going back to history there's always been concerning things and it is somewhat of my nature to try to focus on the positive but some of the highlights that i've seen and i'm definitely noticing in the last few years i think one of them is certainly the emphasis 
on soil health and really starting to pay attention to what's going on below ground. We thought that we were being revolutionary when we started looking at the soil surface. And I mean, we acknowledge that there was stuff going on, you know, with the roots and all that. But honestly, I never would have imagined all the things that we've learned because I used to tell the story that, you know, with our summer grazing cattle, before we come involved, got involved in holistic management, we would keep an eye on the cattle. Yeah. Is there some grass out there? Yeah. Okay. We're good. And then we started digging around and trying to figure out how much bare ground we had, what different types of plants did we have? And as long as what else was going on, you know, with other organisms, etc. But now the drilling down to just try to find out and understand all the complexities and interrelationships with soil health, I think that that has certainly been a game changer, as well as in for holistic management, that has helped us be more inclusive of the cropping grain farming element of it. Um, Because before, as I was uh, mentioning, you know, we were just cowboys and cattle people and ranchers didn't have anything to do with that. So um, that expansion, I think, has been good. You know, certainly the increased awareness for people in general to want to know where their food comes from and the import. And I mean, recognizing the connection there, I think, you know, with how it's grown, where it's grown, and how long did it take to get her to and then all the human health connected with that also, I think is important, you know, and that's a tricky piece to navigate. We already said one and a half percent of us are growing this and, and there's a lack of understanding for the consumers. Sometimes uh, I heard a really excellent comment the other day from a fellow rancher, a stockmanship expert, you know, that we're really uh, having these campaigns for thank a farmer and that's all good. But do we as a egg producers think about thanking the consumer and doing a total switch? I thought that was kind of breakthrough thinking. Doesn't matter what you're producing, you know, like thanking the consumer for supporting and being aware. Certainly another thing too is on that same idea and with the technology is that people, the ability for producers to direct market has really expanded in the last 10 years. And um, especially the last five and COVID impacted that certainly. I think that's offered another arena for producers to operate in where perhaps they don't need quite as much access to so many acres because they've got diversity and different product offering. I think that's really encouraging. I think the number of um, young people that are interested in coming back to the farm or the ranch or going to, maybe they've never been there before, coming from different walks of life with good life experiences and education. I think, again, as we need to start looking at different paradigms, because I've been operating under the same one for a number of years now, and maybe it's time for me to do a paradigm shift. Where do you think the egg sector needs to get to and how do we get there? Well, I was mentioning this earlier, but I really am hopeful that we can, again, this little bitty percentage of us start sitting together and coming up with some really forward thinking solutions. I did a, uh, I wrote a column for the cattleman and I referenced William Urey. He wrote the book, Getting to Yes. He's a major negotiator. And, you know, the simplest thing, 
he said that people shouldn't sit across from each other on either sides of the table. We should kind of be in circles. And so that, or even a U shape, you know, with a whiteboard or something at the front so that we can kind of be working towards this together. That was just a little thing that came to mind about, yeah, you're on one side of the table, I'm on the other. That kind of sets yourself up for some adversarial conversations. So, you know, and there, I mean, if I could do anything that I would hope that the egg communities could come together and be less divisive, because we've got a lot of great knowledge to share. We have biases. I mean, of course we do, but that doesn't mean we can't come up with some creative third idea solutions. It's not mine and it's not yours, but it's for uh, something else altogether. Uh, my uh, last question, and it's a very self-serving question of just wonder if you had any words of advice for a small young organization that's trying to empower farmers and ranchers with farm solutions that also happen to be climate solutions. It seems that there is uh, support coming from more areas. And I think, let's face it, one of the things you need is financial support. You know, I think more avenues are opening up all the time. You know, there's so many organizations out there, the OFCAF funding that's, you know, how that works with producers, I don't know, but, or with organizations, but you can be the segue to help the producers. Because really, whatever an organization can do to actually just help the boots on the ground producers, I think that's where some of the keys to success lie. Because that's really, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, how can our ranch still be successful into the next generation? There's a lot of things out there and we as producers can't pay attention to all of them or take advantage or have the info. And if an organization can help do that, you know, whether it be with information, here's a funding program you can use. Also providing some training, as I said, in Western Canada anyway, the old egg extension model is no more. And, you know, certainly the there's some organizations, the research Beef and Forage have taken that up to some degree, but I, a lot of them, uh, and rightfully so, are focused on research. So where's the education piece of it? And there's something that I'm going to uh, put out to your group with the different things that you're doing that are innovative too, bringing all of the groups together too, and creating that shared vision and sharing that knowledge. I don't know. Every time I hear Kelly speak, I just really feel better about myself and the world in general. Okay, let's get back to our tour here. So our tour is going to begin in the beginning, and it's going to begin with a question. How did the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast get started? Now, for the answer, we need to skip all the way ahead to episode 26, what we do with Brenda Barrett, the agriculture producer who started Rural Roots back in 2017. What was the best thing about being my boss? Oh. <laughs> Wait, no, not that part. This part. Well, other yeah. thing I want to ask, do you remember how we came up with the idea for the podcast? I don't even, I can't even, I remember doing the grant application and all that, but I don't even know if it was your idea or no. my idea or we just came up with it together. I remember we were talking about the challenge of... Well, we didn't want to lose the face-to-face, -face, the challenge that dates and timing don't always work for all the people we wanted to be there, right? And, it, and so how do we, I guess it came up because the, you know, the very first 
launch, you could say, of the project was when we partnered with Organic Alberta. Right. Yeah. Um, and brought there, if you could say it was Climate University, because we used some of our funding to really bring those experts into what could have been a university type setting or that classic conference True. type setting. Right. Um and it was Kim, I think, who kind of, or somebody from the advisory committee was saying, well, are we going to at least videotape this? We don't know what we're going to do yeah, with it yet, Kim, yeah, right? right? So we found out it wasn't going to cost, I think, what I thought it would have cost um, to do that. And we did, we live streamed some of it. Well, basically, we had all this content. And then we were headed out into the field days. Mm. And it was that kind of a piece of, and also because it was, I think, even Mark, I can remember him prodding this piece of at the time we had funding for one year mm-hmm. we had no idea what we were going to become or how long and I think we were thinking okay if we can do this in one year we've at least thrown some pebbles and created some ripples out there and we've made our contribution and we co- converted some of the that climate literacy money which primarily in my perception went into more education programs from a K to grade 12 point of view mm. Greatly, mm-hmm. not saying not needed, but we're unique in that we took some of that funding and diverted it to a, a unique population that doesn't often access those funds and benefits of them. So we were talking about archiving even, just how do we capture what this project is and make it available beyond the one year term. And so that was where we video and talked about, and then I think podcasting, because I listen to a lot of podcasts. I know that probably came up. And mm. and fortunately, the Alberta Real Estate Foundation was there to come in as a partner. Yeah, well, this worked out well. I remember just thinking how easy it was going to be. It's like, ah, you know, I've done journalism. What's the difference? Like, oh, there's, a, there's a huge difference. <laughs> no, I, on the other hand, had not really listened to a podcast before we started the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast. Actually, I think I may have listened to one, and the name of that podcast was and is My Dad Wrote a Porno, which, as you can probably tell from the name, had very little to do with agriculture. It's a hilarious podcast, though. And when I was working on this podcast episode, I started combing through my emails to try and find an email that said something like, Let's start a podcast. Here's a new idea. It's called a podcast. The only thing I could find was an email from December 11th of 2017. So about two months after I started with Rural Roots. And in that email, just discussing with Brenda what some of the production costs would be for the podcast. So doing a podcast was a decision we made quite early on with Rural Roots at Climate Solutions. And as we just heard from Brenda, it was a combination of somebody proposing we videotape the presentations we'd organize for the Organic Alberta Conference in 2018, and us also recognizing producers are just busy. Not everybody can come to a conference or attend a field day. And we also had the other problem at the time, we just didn't know if Rural Roots was going to last longer than a year. It would take a full nine months, but by August 18th, 2018, we released our first episode, Cows and Climate Change with Nicolette Han Neiman. And here's the introduction. Here are the very first words of the very first Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast episode. Cattle can't seem to get a break in the media. In fact, if the polar bears come to symbolize the most widely recognized four-legged victim of climate change, the cow has come to represent the polar opposite. Our bovine buddy has become the climate villain in the eyes of the public a cause of climate change that's up there with driving your car or burning fossil fuels. This demonization of cattle, whether you view it that way or not, might not be entirely fair to our ruminant friends, according to U.S.-based writer, environmental lawyer, and rancher 
Nicolette Han Neiman. Neiman is probably one of the most vocal proponents of sustainable meat in North America. She's published two books. One's got a really great name. It's called The Righteous Pork Chop. I really recommend it. And her articles have also been published in the New York Times, the Atlantic, the LA Times as well. The weird part about all this is that Neiman's actually a vegetarian. In this episode of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions, we're going to unpack Neiman's argument that there is a place for cattle in a world trying its best to take action on climate change. And that maybe, just maybe, this common assumption that we need to ditch meat for the survival of the planet warrants at least a second look. It's like Neiman says, it's not the cow, it's the how. She actually has a t-shirt with that printed on it. I've seen it. My name's Derek Leahy, and I'm talking to you from the heart of cattle country in central Alberta. That was more or less how we did the intro back then. It changed by episode 11, and the whole reason it changed to the more like 60-second format that we now do is just because a podcast editor told me around that time it was absolutely ridiculous that our introductions took somewhere between two to five minutes. 60 seconds, tops, is what we were told. Now, one of my more embarrassing memories from that first episode is when we recorded it. I was getting some help at that time from an Edmonton radio producer And we're sitting in this co-working space. It was in the basement of some building on White Ave. And we start recording. And then the producer looks to me and says, why are you talking like that? I say to the producer, what do you mean? Producer then says to me, your voice sounds different. Do you talk like that normally? And that was actually a rhetorical question. And my response was, well, uh, nope. Then the producer says, maybe you should just use your normal voice. For some reason, at that time, I had it in my head that if you're going to do a podcast, you needed to come up with a podcast voice. The podcast voice I came up with at the time was somewhere between a radio host at 3 a.m. hosting a jazz program and somebody working a phone sex hotline. Cows and Climate Change is still the most popular episode of those Organic Alberta Conference 2018 presentations that we recorded, published on YouTube, and turned into podcast episodes. There's about 10 of them. The only other one that's just as popular is episode 17, Soil Biology, with Dr. Jeff Battagelli. I find this quite interesting, actually, just because I felt at the time, and I could be completely wrong, that soil biology wasn't a really huge topic of discussion in 2017. Sorry, 2018. Uh, but now, today, it just you hear about it more and more and more. Uh, the grazing conference this December in Edmonton, like soil biology is the main thing that they'll be talking about. Since the Organic Alberta Conference gave us so much great material for the podcast, we decided to do the same thing with our field days. Our first attempt was an absolute failure. Our first field day was a passive solar greenhouse tour in Bowdoin. I had a handheld recorder and I was standing way too far away from the presenter. The audio was absolute crap. Our second attempt was a success. It was our second field day, and this took place at Little Lowe's Farm in Sundry. It was hosted by Rita and Jeremy Clyde. And this field day gave us our three-part series called Farming with Biodiversity. It features Karina Kopp of the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute, Gary Bank, a retired agroforestry specialist, Marion Weber, who is now the chief environmental economist with the Ministry of the Environment in British Columbia. 
Now, the whole idea behind the series and the field day was we wanted to discuss how giving on-farm biodiversity a boost was a way to give farms and ranches a boost when it came to resilience and profitability. Here's Christine Campbell of Alice Canada explaining how biodiversity can help out with on-farm resilience in episode 15, Ecosystem Services. Well, I mean, from a simple uh, biological concepts perspective, there's something called hybrid vigor. So um, it's kind of the concept down at the very genetic level that the more diversity there is, the more chance that when a threat comes along, you might have some what we call alleles or traits that might help you combat it. And so if you have diversity within a population, even if you have, say, a pest that comes in, and wipes out 60% of your crops. But if 40% have that that adaptation that is going to allow them to withstand that pest, then your crop will survive, right? Um, so it's the same kind of thing when we have that diversity in the broader ecosystem. The ecosystem also shares that resilience. So we, can, generally speaking, most ecosystems can withstand, you know, maybe losing one species or having, um, you know, some some kind of catastrophic event happen to them, they're not going to lose the entire ecosystem. But if you have an ecosystem that has been whittled down to one or two species, well, all of a sudden something comes in that does cause that to collapse, you have nothing and you're starting from zero and you don't have some of those basic process makers, um, like the soil, uh, soil uh, microbes, for instance, that can help to build uh, the the systems that it takes to then rebuild your your crops, right? So um, overall, overall that that diversity helps to build resilience into the entire system. Poor Christine had such a bad cold that day. It's pretty wild to think how much programs for ecosystem goods and services have grown since we did our biodiversity podcast. We lose 1.6 billion, with a B, metric tons of topsoil every year. Billion with a B, 1.6 metric tons. What does that mean? It's a number and some words. How do we visualize that? If you were to load all of that soil on rail cars, the length of the train would stretch around the equator nearly seven times. We have some of the best land on the planet, and we're letting all of that go away every year. In Canada, it's not that much better. Again, you can't write a check that big. None of us can So what we need to do is I believe that we need to have a new revolution, not a new green revolution where we're focused on above ground, but a brown revolution where we're focused on soil. And how we can do this is doing something that I refer to as eco-functional intensification. We need to look at our landscape, at our farmscape, and look at how we can utilize every inch, every centimeter on that farmscape to its greatest efficiency. You've got tree rows, use them, not just to break wind, but to attract pollinators, 
to help to manage other animals that may come into the system, to attract bats and birds, utilizing your landscape. You've got an area of your field where water frequently puddles on, you know, every three years out of five. You don't get a lot of productivity out of that. Why are you keeping tilling that up and putting that into and planting seed there and spending money and writing checks? You can convert that land into something, again, that could attract insects and birds and bats and bees and other animals that are going to provide function to your farmscape. It's looking at how we can optimize the use of the land that we have. Because again, we're shipping a lot of it away. In the US, the Gulf of Mexico really doesn't need any more soil. Really doesn't need any more. What we wanna do is we wanna maximize the efficiencies of the processes of the organisms that have been in the soil and created soil to begin with. If you wanna know how to get soil to function at its optimum efficiency, wouldn't you wanna use, tap into using the organisms that actually made it? Don't you think that they would know how to use it most efficiently? I'm fairly certain quite a few of you recognize that voice. But just in case it's a new voice for you, that person telling it like it is, is soil microbiologist Dr. Chris Nichols in episode 20, The Brown Revolution. Episode 20 all the way up to episode 28, that's the third stop on our tour. The second stop on our tour was the biodiversity series. Between the biodiversity series and episode 20, our podcast was either what we had recorded from the Organic Alberta Conference or field days that we'd done, or me finally sitting down with a guest in a recording studio in Calgary and having a chat. I used to do this weird thing back then where I got the guests to read the credits at the end. I'm not too sure if they actually liked doing it. I haven't done that one in a while. So for the first 20 episodes, soil health, on-farm renewable energy like geothermal and solar and biodiversity, those are some core topics we covered. But from episode 20 to episode 28, something different starts happening. We started getting some really big names in the podcast. Now, for the general public, maybe they're not big names, but for us in the agriculture community, especially that segment of the community that's really trying its best to do great things for the land, for communities, for the climate, for us, these are really big names. They're people like Dr. Chris Nichols, who used to be the chief scientist at the Rodell Institute and is now working with a bunch of agriculture organizations in Canada. Uh, people like the water guy, so David Souchin of the University of Regina, and Edward Bork of the University of Alberta, who led that huge adaptive multipaddock grazing research project in the prairies. And when we interviewed Dr. Bork, the study was still going on. In episode 40, Grazing for Water Infiltration, we actually got an opportunity to talk about the results of the study because the results of the study were finally available last year. So other big names we got were producers like permaculture design specialist Dakota Cohen of Cohen Farms, Tony Neal, who's one of the first and only owners and operators of an electric tractor in Canada. A funny story how we got that recording because Tony Neal actually doesn't live in Alberta. He lives in Ontario and this was before the COVID-19 pandemic, so before everybody was just fluent in Zoom. But 
Tony Neal just happened to live 20 minutes down the road from where my parents used to live. So one visit back east, I was back home for Christmas. I had a chance to pop by his place for the interview. Had a lot of fun doing it too. Also, at this time when we were getting those bigger names on the podcast, we managed to get Don Rizika of Sunrise Farms and Mary and Peter Lungard of Nature Ways Farmed on the podcast. Now, these two episodes, so episode 25 and 27, these were the first two and only episodes we did for what we called the Farm Elders series. It's a series I wish we had continued. The idea with the series was to talk to and hear from those pioneers in the movement, those agriculture producers who were earlier adopters of what was in holistic management, for example. So maybe somewhere in the next 50 episodes, we can continue with the Farm Elders series. What does it feel like to try and get out of farming at this point in time? Oh, it's like uh, laying on the bed with a psychiatrist. What's the first thing that comes into your mind? Guilt. Why? Well, uh, we've had a, a very good run here, and we want the farm to uh, be able to transition successfully to the next owners. And if that doesn't happen, the, the effort that so many people have blessed us with their knowledge and wisdom and passion, that it's almost like that was done for naught, eh? And so... We've been left with the reins to that process to try and find the next group, family, individual, farmer, whoever that's going to take the farm over. So, The next stop on our tour is episode 30, Native Plants, with Lori Brave Rock and William Singer III of Kainai First Nation. This was the start of something for Rural Roots, and I don't think we even realized it was the start of something at the time. If you look at the 19 episodes that we did after episode 30, a lot of them have a strong or perhaps a not so strong connection to episode 30. Now, why is that? Now, first of all, episode 30 was the first time we intentionally featured Blackfoot or Indigenous traditional knowledge on the podcast. Now, how come I threw in the word intentional there? While one could easily make the argument that a lot of the practices and topics we cover on this podcast, like rotational grazing or farming with biodiversity, they have a lot in common with and likely have roots in indigenous traditional land use practices and knowledge. You know, there is no separation from the land. Um, You know, there is no separation from the plants. As far as our culture, like they're, they're every part of our culture. They're in every part of everything. The more we get involved with our plants, the more we're realizing, oh, wow, that's what that design meant. This is what, you know, and I'm like, I can't believe like how ingrained all of this stuff is in our culture. And we've always known it was there, but just seeing and learning more about it now, it just blows me away. Like how, how really, really ingrained our plants, our animals and everything are into our culture there. You cannot separate one without, you know, losing something. Episode 30 wouldn't be the last time Blackfoot knowledge would be featured on the podcast. As I mentioned earlier, we now have a whole podcast series called the Six Cicates Satipi Agriculture Project focused on Blackfoot land stewards and Blackfoot producers. 
The series is hosted by Lance Tailfeathers, who's a member of Kainai First Nation. And so far, Lance has been able to interview Mike Brucehead, Dr. Leroy Littlebear, Cyrus and Roy Weaselfat. And we hope to get more Blackfoot producers and land stewards on the podcast in the coming months and years. The other reason episode 30 gives us a glimpse of where the podcast was going to go in the next 19 episodes is because of something I mentioned, and I mentioned it kind of in passing at the beginning, but something that's become a pretty big deal for Rural Roots. Last February, we were also right in the thick of designing a brand new initiative for Rural Roots Climate Solutions. It's it's called, and I'm not a big fan of the name, even though I came up with the name, it's called Climate Farmers Lab or The Climate Farmers Lab, and it's a social innovation lab for agriculture producers in Alberta. The Climate Farmers Lab was renamed the Regenerative Agriculture Lab shortly before we launched it in early 2021. Now, this was based on the advice of our advisors who told us at the time, the conversation that Alberta needs to have now is around regenerative agriculture. And they turned out to be totally right. You got to remember around this time, this is when Regen Egg had its breakout moment. You know, the documentary Kiss the Ground came out on Netflix. And there was a lot of interest from the public and local food. And this was largely due to the fact that the COVID-19 pandemic was just wreaking havoc on the supply chain. And a lot of people just had more time for gardening all of a sudden. Up until this point, regenerative agriculture was a term we rarely used on the podcast. Not that we had anything against regenerative agriculture. Most on-farm and on-ranch climate solutions fit into regenerative agriculture. We just needed a term for our purposes that captured the on-farm energy efficiency and clean energy production side of things as well. So we usually talked about climate-friendly agriculture or on-farm climate solutions. Recently, you've probably heard us use the term agricultural climate solutions. They're all the same thing. In a nutshell, they're all land management practices and farm technology that provide us with climate change mitigation and adaptation services. By episode 33, Stories from the Peace with Ash Armstrong and Kurt Hale, the podcast is talking regenerative agriculture for one of the first times. I started getting concerned about the use of certain chemicals. Uh, that we may seem safe today, of course, from the people selling them. They're always going to tell you that. But in the reality of things, down the road 20 years, if it comes out that this chemical was very detrimental to people, I ask my boys, who's responsible? The ones selling it or us using it? And the resolve was that both. Uh, but we could we could cut out cut our part out of that system and say, listen, we want to raise healthy food. We want to keep our soil healthy. And that's how we got into regenerative farming. Another interesting thing about episode 33, this was the first time we collaborated with another organization on a podcast episode. In this case, it was Peace Country Beef and Forge Association which, after episode 33, went on to create their own podcast. The name of that podcast is Cows, Coffee, and Crops. The way it worked was Joanna Murray of PCBFA conducted the interview. We added some narration, we did some post-production, and bam, we had a podcast episode. It worked so well, we did it again with Gateway Research Organization in episode 36, Regenerative Potatoes, with Brendan Rocky and Steve Canyon. Regenerative Agriculture, obviously featured prominently in that one as well. 
uh, bringing in that very first uh, diverse cover crop was was still a really good moment for us. Um, yeah. And I'll I'll give Jay Fuhrer a lot of credit. I know you've you, you've surely have met him many times. Yeah. Um, when we first started growing cover crops, it was still a monoculture. We were using it to address some concerns, and it was doing a great job. And Jay came to my farm, and I was really happy about him being there. I was really proud to show him what we were doing. And Jay, being the way he is, was very humble. He said, I, I love what you're doing here, but have you ever thought about plant diversity? And we had a great talk that day. And before he left, we had a seven-species mix put together. Nice. Brought that in the next year. And I still think that was probably the biggest leap forward we ever took in one step. Episode 36 is actually our most listened to episode to this day. We did four more episodes on regenerative agriculture after that one, and I guarantee it we'll be doing more in the future. So maybe you can see what I mean that episode 30 set the direction for the podcast for the next 19 episodes. It was around this time when we were producing episodes on Regen Egg and Blackfoot Knowledge that the podcast started taking deeper dives on certain topics. Topics that didn't always fit neatly into the farm solutions or climate solutions box. Episodes like our two-parter on New Farmers as a Climate Solution with Dana Penrice of Young Agrarians. Or the 90-minute episode we did with Darren Qualman of the National Farmers Union on what a climate farm plan for the entire egg sector could look like. Poor Darren probably couldn't talk for the rest of the day after we did that episode. So that's our tour of the podcast. It started with an idea to get more bang for our buck out of the presentations we'd organize for our conference and our field days, just in case Rural Roots ended after a year. It took us about 20 episodes to build up the courage to ask some big names to come on the podcast. And eventually, the podcast wound up shining a light on two very intriguing topics, Blackfoot traditional knowledge and how it applies to land management and regenerative agriculture. I think it's fair to say at this point, we've got a pretty good idea of where the podcast has come from now. Let's tag in the rest of the Rural Roots team to find out where things might be going in the next five years for the overall Rural Roots to Climate Solutions initiative. Remember, Rural Roots is much more than just a podcast. My name is Marie, and uh, I am from Athabasca, Alberta, which is about two hours straight north of Edmonton. I am currently calling myself the operations manager for Roads to Climate Solutions, although I've worn many hats since we started. So yeah, I do a little bit of everything. I, I work mostly in like our agriculture programming, organizing events, supporting the rest of the team with their initiatives. So my name is Shiana. I am the community animator for Real Roots to Climate Solutions. What I do is I am the organizer of the Regenerative Agriculture Social Innovations Lab. And I also look after the bi-weekly Regen Egg Contacts Tracker or newsletter. And I aid our Real Roots team in some other egg projects. Uh, my name is Kristen and I live in Sylvan Lake, Alberta, which is about a half an hour from Red Deer. And I am the communications coordinator. So I am responsible for social media, maintaining the website, and really anything to do with writing or communicating with our community. Kristen and China just started with Rural Roots this year, so 2022. 
Aside from me, Marie has been with Rural Roots the longest. She started as a project coordinator in 2019. So I asked Marie about some of the changes she'd seen at Rural Roots over the last four years. So I think one of the changes that I noticed the most is just how much we've expanded our reach since 2019. So back when I started, we were just starting to go beyond like that central Alberta corridor. <laughs> and if you look at who we're reaching out to now, we have like we have connections all across the province. We're partnering with organizations that are outside of our province. And I I really love it when we have people tune into our webinars that are like from Australia or Germany or Africa because they want to know what we're doing here in Alberta. So I think that's so cool that our reach has gone that far. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know how many organizations can say that like Alberta based organizations can say like, we have an impact like on the other side of the planet. So that's super cool. And it's, it's been awesome to be here to watch that happen. Hey, Kristen, on to you. Uh, like you do have the most communications experience out of anybody on this team here. So I thought maybe mm. some more podcast specific questions might be good for you. So definitely. I'm curious, where would you either, where do you think the podcast would be in four years or will be in four years or where, where would you like to see it in four years? I realize they're kind of two separate questions, but free to answer it any way you want. Well, I think, you know, looking at how social media has evolved over the last four years, um, it is very hard to determine where podcasting will be in four years. Will podcast still be a thing or will there'll be a new platform that we've jumped on? Um, but you know, listening to what Marie said about the reach that we've had over the last few years, I would love to see the podcast. You know, when I look at the stats of our podcast, we hit a lot of Canadians, definitely a lot of Albertans, which is wonderful. That's who we're trying to to reach out to. Pie in the sky, I would love to have built up our community and educated and supported enough agricultural producers in Alberta that we kind of need to branch out a little bit more and that our podcast can um, hit more of a Canadian market. And I think to do that, it's just continually telling these success stories and talking about government policies that are kind of changing the narrative. You know, we had just did a social post about four living labs that are coming to that are being developed in Canada. And that's extremely exciting because what comes out of that is stuff that we can share with Albertans and all agricultural producers and just kind of show them the power of that. So yeah, my hope would be that our podcast has such a big impact as well as the other work that we're doing that we need to kind of branch out outside of Alberta. We've kind of worked ourselves out of a job as an Alberta-based organization and then we can branch out in that way. Producers had a deal with COVID, like stupidly high fertilizer and fuel prices but at the same time, we had these like amazing announcement from like Pepsi and McCain saying they want to do regenerative agriculture. And really up until like 2020, it really felt like only practitioners of regenerative agriculture would use the term regenerative agriculture. The agriculture system has had some shocks the last couple of years. I guess some of them are good. Some of them obviously weren't so good. Where do you think the sector is heading right now? I think I think there's lots of exciting things coming. I agree with you that even even like three years ago, you would have never dreamt that the General Mills or Pepsi or any of those companies would would care about regenerative agriculture. So it's super exciting that they are. I feel like most Alberta producers are doing what they can with the knowledge and the resources that they have in terms of best management practices. But I think in the next couple of years, we're going to see a lot of data made available 
lots of regulation changes, lots of trials and labs and different programs and stuff that will help or possibly force producers to learn more and adapt to more practices, which will help accelerate Regen Ag in Alberta. I also feel that it'll be really challenging next couple of years for many producers because changing man- management practices quickly can be really hard and super costly on many levels. Um, so I think we have to be really aware and and provide strong support to our producers through these these times of transitions and and doing that to ensure that we don't affect their ability to continue producing or or affect our food supply. But in the next four years, I'd love to see Alberta producers of all kinds being rewarded for for the work that they do and the stewardship of the land um, without having the current struggle of trying to support their family as well. They're doing that. So I hope to see Regen Ag be the normal, um, the new norm um, in terms of soil and animal and human health. Uh, I'd like to see that be of, of higher importance, like polycultures, biodiversity, soil health, all those good things all linked together with successful producers, I guess, would be kind of where I hope to see it in the future. Now, to wrap things up, I asked the team to pretend they had access to a time machine, but it's not a very good time machine because it can only go to 2026. I asked them to get into that time machine, land in 2026, and tell me exactly what rule Roots to Climate Solutions is up to at that point in time. My thoughts were that uh, Roots would be cranking out some awesome farmer blogs, podcasts, and webinars and all the successful producers in the province, which would be hard to choose from because there'll be so many of them to choose from now. Our team will have grown to six people. Um, The Regen Ag Lab will be wrapping up after five very successful and influential phases uh, with a great following of amazing group of past and present participants from all across the Prairie Provinces, meaning that we've incorporated, incorporated some of the other provinces into our lab as well. Rural Roots will have been successful in aiding Indigenous communities throughout the province in their farming goals and be hosting webinars and podcasts with their successful producers as well. And that we would be in our fourth year of a youth program where Rural Roots is able to support and provide resources for youth educators and programming in the schools. Very good. All right. Who's going to top that? (laughs) I guess I'm next, hey? I think for me, Shiana, you hit the nail on the head. I would love to see us engaging in youth uh, to kind of get them talking amongst themselves about Regen Egg and make it less of a a bit of a term and more used in their common language and how they think. I would love, like I said before, to see us, you know, really working with the rest of the prairie provinces. And it would be great even to have those successful producers that are implementing uh, regenerative agriculture want to be highlighted on our, you know, podcasts and things like that, that we're having such a big impact in educating and supporting others that these producers really want to become involved in our organization to kind of spread their success and encourage other producers to do the same. Thanks, Kristen. I would I would love to see us have stronger connections in our education system. So both like in youth education systems, but also post-secondary. I think that would be really cool that we had kind of stronger connections there. I, we do a lot of work already with post-secondary researchers and that, but I think we can go even further with that. Regenerative ag, it's its a growing movement. And I would love to see in 2026, like there is no struggle to find a producer to feature on our farmer's blog or to find someone to talk on our podcast because so many people have adopted these practices. So that would be awesome. It'd be cool in four years if we were hosting our 100th podcast um, and reflecting on these next four years as our past and seeing where we ended up and and how we got there. I mean, if the last four years was anything to go by, it's going to be it's going to be huge. So I'm looking forward to being a part of it. My turn. 
I'd love to see us have podcast episodes ready for you consistently on a regular basis. Longtime listeners of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast might remember there was a time when we were releasing episodes twice a month. That kind of went off the rails when COVID hit, but it had less to do with the pandemic, actually. Arguably, the pandemic gave us more time for podcasting because of the restrictions on public gathering. It was more because we were scrambling for funding around that time to keep the podcast going, as well as the rest of Rural Roots to Climate Solutions activities, because the previous year, in 2019, the provincial government eliminated the funding programs that we depended on. We're still scrambling for funding to this day. I am truly sorry that we haven't been able to be a reliable and dependable podcast. A podcast consistently telling those stories, those amazing stories of the farm solutions that are also climate solutions that are also a great fit for Alberta. Despite the challenges of finding funding for this work, I do hope going forward with the next 50 episodes, we can start producing episodes monthly, maybe even twice a month again. If I take a realistic look into the old crystal ball here, I think the podcast in the next 50 episodes will probably talk more and more about the agriculture practices that reduce dependence on chemical fertilizers and increase soil health. It's something that we haven't really talked that much about in the previous 50 episodes. But this year, between the record high fertilizer prices and Canada's goal to reduce nitrous oxide emissions by 30% in agriculture, something has to give. Something's gonna give. So I could see us producing more podcast episodes on cover cropping, intercropping, companion cropping, and my personal favorite, perennial grain, oilseed, and pulses cropping. So I hope in the next 50 episodes, we could be one of the trusted sources of information for crop producers looking to improve their soil biology game. This might sound a little odd, but I wouldn't be surprised in the next 50 episodes if we talk less about adaptive multi-paddock grazing. Not that we have anything against AMP grazing. You know we love it. And I, I know I'm in a bit of an echo chamber here, but I feel like it's becoming more and more self-evident that AMP grazing just makes sense. Now that said, I wouldn't be surprised in the next 50 episodes if we take a look at how amp grazing could work on those ranches that are 5,000 acres or more. I could also see us covering some of the new ways to do amp grazing beyond, you know, poly wire and stepping posts. Those uh, collars they've developed for cattle to keep them in a given paddock, that might be a good example of that. By far the most requests for information we have received over the last five years is for information on passive solar greenhouse growing, Specifically, Fresh Pal Farms' passive solar greenhouse in Olds, Alberta. There's just something about what Dong Gianni and his family are doing at Fresh Pal that has really captured the imagination of so many people in Alberta and so many people around the world. And I'm not making that part up. We regularly get emails from people in different countries wanting to connect with Gianni. This huge interest in passive solar greenhouse growing also has me wondering if we'll be revisiting geothermal greenhouse growing in our next 50 episodes. By the time we reach episode 100, it'll probably be 2026. 
And that'll be about the same time that those three living labs in Alberta should have a whole whack of agricultural climate solutions that have been co-developed and tested by producers and scientists in our province. They'll have a bunch of solutions for us to talk about on this podcast. I could totally see our regenerative agriculture lab and our Siksikatsatipi agricultural project continuing to have their own podcast series providing us with inspiring story after inspiring story. There's a really cool word in Blackfoot that I recently learned from a friend who was actually kicking my ass for not speaking with more confidence in myself on the podcast when she taught me that word. She's a member of Kainai First Nation. The word, and I think I got the pronunciation right because I actually wrote this one out phonetically. The word is Akshustuitakit, which translated into English as far as I know, means go forward in the knowledge you will be victorious. I don't know if I'll still be the main voice of the Rural Roots to Climate Solutions podcast by the time we get to episode 100. I do believe with all my heart that this podcast will be victorious in its mission to provide information on the farm solutions and ranch solutions that are also climate solutions and in telling the stories of the agriculture producers and land stewards putting those solutions into action I do believe this podcast will be victorious in that mission if it remains focused on one single thing. You heard Kelly talk about how important it is, and you heard the Rural Roots team talk about it as well. As much as we love to talk about farm tech this and egg practice that on this podcast, the main focus of the podcast has really been people this entire time. And this is something I didn't actually realize until we did this episode. But it is the reason we do the podcast. It's the reason we can do the podcast. These people are as diverse as the biodiversity we advocate for on the podcast. They have different views. They have different political views. They come from different backgrounds. And many have different occupations. Some of them even think climate change is a load of BS or that regenerative agriculture sounds nice, but it's not practical. I don't think either one of those things, if you hadn't figured that part out already. But it doesn't really seem to matter. As long as they want, as long as we want thriving land and rural communities, we can work together. They're our kind of people. Rural Roots to Climate Solutions is an Alberta-based initiative empowering agriculture producers and the communities they live in with climate solutions. Rural Roots runs workshops, farm field days, webinars, and the Regenerative Agriculture Lab, produces a farmer's blog, works with rural communities to develop their own renewable energy projects, and of course, we do this podcast. For more information about us and what we do, go to our website, which is www. RR2CS.ca. The rest of the amazing and talented Rural Roots to Climate Solutions team is Marie Galanka, Cheyenne Younger, and Kristen Mountain. The team is supported by a great group of volunteers and consultants. A big thank you to Dana, Karen, Shelby, Jay, and Don, who sit on the advisory committee, Karen, Peter, and Matt, who facilitate the Regen Lab, and Trina, who's the writer behind the Farmer's Blog. And let's not forget Kyle, who edits podcast episodes for us. The project is funded by a variety of Alberta-based funders at the moment. This episode was done in partnership with Young Agrarians. My parts of the episode were recorded in Calgary, 
so that means they were recorded on Treaty 7 lands and in the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Happy farming wherever you are in Alberta. And remember, what's good for the climate is good for the farm. The the biggest thing that we're proud of is that we're open-minded and that we're willing to to challenge um, traditional paradigms. The fact that we want to interact with the ecology, with the the processes of nature. You know, people want to do good for the planet and people see farming as a practical way to do that. That uh, Chinese-style passive solar greenhouse is pretty cost-effective and uh, environmentally friendly and uh, giving correct uh, varieties, we can grow year-round in Alberta. I, I think a lot comes down to really to the land. What is happening on the land is going to be very critical in the future, both again for food security, but at the same time trying to adapt to and mitigate the effects of climate change for preserving biodiversity. Being an early adopter is a stressful uh, position and uh, I didn't realize or anticipate the amount of sleep I would lose. Uh, You can read and you can do all of the studying, but until you actually put into practice what you're learning, Uh, then you start to understand that nature isn't always, it's not always going to turn out. There's an imperative to act, uh, you know, in defense of and in support of family farming in Canada. Um, So I'm I'm really trying to activate land for regenerative purposes as much as I can in an urban context. But regenerative ag, it's not an orthodoxy or a dogma. It's not something that's like a certified practice. It's It's a set of cultural management practices, and it's a change of mind, and it's a change of heart. You know, we're often having to, like, uh, make the decision between making money or supporting the ecology. Like, when, when we're faced with that, how can we, like, try and figure out how to do both? If you want to make small changes, change the way you do things. If you want to make big changes, change the way you see things. We are releasing more carbon from our soils than we're storing, but there is an opportunity to right this wrong, and with good agricultural practices, we can actually be building those carbon stores instead of depleting them. Am I imposing my will on something, or am I submitting to a mutual relationship with the land and the natural processes? You know, these plants have always been here to help us, and that's my message now, it's our turn to help them. Old certainties are being displaced by the biophysical limits of of the climate. And so a lot of changes are gonna have to be made. And and the changes that we're forced to make open the door for a lot of changes that, that we want to make, to make the food that we eat more interesting more nutritious, more delicious, produced by people we know and and maybe the chance uh, to, to produce some of that food ourselves. Maybe this gets edited out of the podcast, but how were you saying rural before? What's the Alberta way versus the Ontario way? See, I think I say it funny. I find like Albertans do like a really short R and I make it sound, when I say rural, it sounds like a, like rural. a ruler. Yeah. Oh. yeah. But every, okay. And that too, route. Everyone says roots. It's route, rural route. Yeah, I think I say rural roots. Yeah. <laughs> I always like. I'm like, am I saying it wrong? I do say it funny though, don't I? Because if I 
I think I say it funny, but if nobody else noticed that, they're not going to get the joke in the intro. So maybe we'll cut that out. The what? Rural? Well, how I say rural, yeah. Rural. Say it both ways. I don't know. Well, I can't. I've been trying to say it the Alberta way for four years. I can't. Rule. <laughs> I say rule. 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 Oh, now I'm I think confused. I say it as you, Derek. You said it like me, but did I you like, the first few times you heard me say it? Were you like, what the? F-? Nope. Never noticed. Huh. Well, there goes that intro. Well, that whole podcast has to be reworked. Yeah, exactly. I have to rewrite <laughs> that. Ah, that's going to be such a good part, too. <laughs>